This morning's <clears throat> Bible reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw that they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking in Galilean? Aren't all these speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya and Isarine, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Christians and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Friends, uh, a number of years ago I was in Queensland and uh, for a conference, a pastor's conference, and uh, one of the speakers was a fellow called Jason, a pastor of a quite a large church in Brisbane. And he told us this story, he said it was a story of uh, how he had one Sunday, he had preached the gospel, maybe a gathering like this, with a couple of thousand people in the, in the auditorium, and he challenged people to come to Christ, uh, praying, preaching in the power of the Spirit, and at the end of the service a man came forward to give his life to Christ. Uh, we pray that when we take the gospel of people, people give their lives to Christ. That's what we pray for. That's why we preach. That's why we do kids' ministry. That's why we do youth ministry. That's why we do everything we do. Uh, but the, he said this man looked, looked a mess. He was dirty. He was smelly and shaking with at least a drug addiction. He said, uh, I prayed for him, but I must confess, he said, that I had doubts that God could change him. He just seemed too far from God, and I doubted whether we would see him again in church. But he prayed for this man, praying that God would touch him and change him and transform him, and, uh, and really make him an authentic Christian. He said a few weeks later, the man came up to him in church. Jason said, I didn't recognize him. He looked and smelled different. He dressed differently. There was an air of confidence in this man who came to him. There was a joy in God in this man. In time, he joined their welcoming and connecting, just inviting others and welcoming others into their services. Said so a few weeks later, I watched this guy walk into church with a woman on his arm with a smile from ear to ear. He said, as I consider the man who first came and gave his life to Christ and the man he was now, I saw the powerful work of the Spirit of God in this man's life. That God is powerful enough to transform lives, no matter who they are, where they're from. God can take the atheist. God can take the drug addict. God can take the prisoner. God can take the self-confident, successful, 
Taylor Swift, for example. Whoever they happen to be in the world, God can transform them by the power of his spirit. And friends, God has promised to give us his spirit to empower us for witness and for life transformation. And the good thing is, as we go out, as we talk about going out to see life transformed, as we go out, we do it in the power of the Spirit. We don't do it in our own strength. It's not Ange Gratsunas who saves anyone. We are called to be servants of the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, whether in Australia or Cambodia or Indonesia or Brazil or wherever it happens to be, in the power of the Spirit, trusting that God would bring transformation. The early disciples uh, were waiting for the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to them, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is about to return to heaven. He says, Wait, the power is coming. The Holy Spirit is coming. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And my, may I add, even Australia. We are the ends of the earth, right? But what were they doing in Acts chapter 1, verse 14? They, all the apostles, joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. A few weeks ago, on January 28th, I preached on touching heaven changing earth. I really covered the whole idea of taking the word, praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can have a listen to that today. And in your Bible study groups this week, you'll look at the spirit and prayer. Today, I'm simply going to look at effectively the the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost, uh, you had that Bible passage, uh, one of the three main festivals of Judaism. Let's get, get an insight what is happening on this day. The festival would attract large number of pilgrims to Jerusalem. They would travel from many cities in many countries. It occurred 50 days after Passover. Pentecost, Pente, is the, uh, the root for 50. Originally, Pentecost celebrated the conclusion of the barley harvest. The first cuttings of the harvest were kept, made into bread, and offered at the completion of the harvest. We see that in Leviticus chapter 23. But as time went on, Pentecost came to commemorate the giving of the law of Moses on Mount Sinai, following the Passover, when the redemption of the people from Egypt was remembered. And I think it's appropriate that the event that was going to propel the gospel to the ends of the earth took place at a time when people from the ends of the earth were in Jerusalem. Isn't that lovely? That God brings the people from all over the place to receive the gospel to then send them to the ends of the earth. Pentecost was the inauguration of the new era of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who would empower us to proclaim the authentic Jesus to our city, our country, and to the ends of the earth. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. And when we look at what happens in Acts chapter 2 and uh, compare that to revivals that have taken place across the globe, and revivals don't happen all the time, do they? Most of the time, like for us, we're just day after day, living for Jesus, praying, rejoicing when one person gets saved after a year of prayer or two or ten, right? Sometimes it's like that. But every so often there's a visitation of God, a powerful visitation of God, where whole groups of people get converted. 
and there's an, a super spiritual awareness of the Spirit of God present. And one of the first revivals, I think, is this one. You see, they're, they're physical phenomena, we see, chapter 2 onwards. There's a deep conviction of sin after the preaching of the gospel in uh, verse 37. 3,000 conversions, verse 41. And a widespread sense of awe, verse 43, were signs of revival. We often, we pray for revival. God, bring that sort of visitation of God into our place. It's a good thing to pray for. But on this day, there's a visitation of God on the day of Pentecost. Their disciples, probably 120 of them, as Acts 1.15 refers to, were together in one place. Some strange things are happening. What happens? Firstly, there is wind and fire, verses 2 and 3. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Take a moment. Imagine if that happened right here now. All of a sudden, it's, nothing's blowing except the air conditioners. Imagine if God visited in a way as he did then. You would know it, wouldn't you? <laughs> and it's, a, it's the blowing of a violent wind through the place without any good reason. The blowing of the wind, uh, keep in mind the word wind and spirit comes from the same word pneuma. So it's symbolic that as God blows through in the wind, it's symbolic that the Spirit of God is now about to land on his people. The Spirit who will bring you life. And then it seemed to be like tongues of fire. I think, I, don't, I can't even imagine, conceive what it's like in this gathering. But we do know that as in the burning bush in the book of Exodus, fire is a symbol of the divine presence. So you've got the wind blowing through, symbolic of God's spirit, and then you've got tongues of fire, symbol of God's presence we see in the Old Testament. But more, you see, with John the Baptist, the spirit with fire means cleansing and judgment, Luke 3, 16 as well. So God comes, he's very present to cleanse, but also to ultimately bring judgment. And together, there's an indication of visitation of God. And then they are speaking in other tongues, and let me say, I've described them as unlearned languages. Unlearned languages. Because you see, this is what is taking place in this passage. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. It's a bit of an exaggeration, right? Where you're saying, from everywhere they've come. That's what it's saying, every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. So, I mean, imagine the sounds coming through here. It's so impactful because there are large crowds outside as well. And they're all going, what's that wind? And they all run. Because then each of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they said, ah, not all these people who are speaking Galileans. How then is it that each of us hears them speaking in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome. They're coming from everywhere, he says. Both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. The word here in your Bibles is the word glossa. 
They're speaking in other glosses. Glossum is simply means tongue or language. Okay? And it's where we get the word glossolalia, which just means speaking in other strange tongues. We have God-fearing Jewish pilgrims from 15 different areas listed in verses 9 to 11. It is estimated that the population of Jerusalem, normally 55,000 in the first century, could increase dramatically to a festival time to, of 200,000 people. 200,000 people are in there. We have Jews from 15 different language groups hearing the 120 believers declare the wonders of God in their own mother tongues. Now, if the blowing of the wind was not enough, if, if the tongues of fire was not enough, hearing people speaking your own language and they've never learned your language and they're poor, uneducated Galileans, you know that there's a visitation of God. God is in the house, we might say. Let me say, in this case, and I'm not going to address the whole issue of tongue speaking today, uh, that in Acts chapter 2, we're talking about unlearned human languages. We're not talking about unformed, unintelligible language, as is often maybe referred to in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. If you go to a Pentecostal church, possibly people are speaking in tongues. They're not speaking in unlearned human languages. They are, in a sense, babbling or speaking in some utterances. But that is not the same as Acts chapter 2. That's another question for another day. But what are they doing? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, what do you do? They declare the wonders of God. We started our series, Go, because he is worthy. Right? The reason we go is because God is worthy of our worship. We want the nations to be glad, as we've sung about. And we go, and as soon as the Spirit of God comes upon you, you're not talking about the football. You're not talking about the concert. You're not talking about what you're having for lunch. You're declaring the goodness of God, the wonders of God. You can't help but speak of his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his redemption, the work on the cross, the work of the resurrection. When the Holy Spirit takes hold of you, it overflows into joyful worship and joyful obedience. They can't help themselves. So what is the response of the people to them? Bewilderment. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Good question. If God doesn't work amongst you, you've got to ask, what's God up to? What's he about to do? Bewildered, literally stopped in their tracks, someone has said. Utterly amazed, literally swept off their feet. Amazed and perplexed, they find it incredible, inexplicable. The believers speaking in tongues were known to be Galileans, who had a reputation of being uncultured. I was looking up some of the background, it says, they had difficulty pronouncing gutturals, had the habit of swallowing their syllables when speaking, so they were looked down upon by the people of Jerusalem as being provincial. And yet they are speaking in a language that they've never learnt. Others mock them. Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. A miracle of God is taking place. People were baptized with the Holy Spirit, declaring the praises of God in unlearned human languages, and all they can say that these guys were drunk. Friends, the truth is that when you take good news to people, 
Some will say, stop, not interested. You're lunatics. They won't call you drunk. They probably assume you don't drink. You're lunatics. Keep your religion to yourself. That's okay. If that's what they say, you walk away and pray for them and pray a blessing over them. They will sometimes think you're mad. And if you think, oh, it's so hard today because they think we're mad or we're a bit unusual or a bit traditional, it's okay. It happened in the first century at a powerful visitation of God in the house and they're still being called nuts. What are some implications for us today? Firstly, intimacy with God and joy in worship. The Holy Spirit comes so we can have a close relationship with God to know him, to love him, to find joy in him. Romans 5, 5 says, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Friends, if you're full of Jesus, God has poured out his love into your hearts. Not simply through the cross, and he has done that, not simply through forgiveness and the resurrection, but then by pouring out his spirit within us. And that joy expresses itself in declaring the wonders of God. And singing is one of those supreme expressions of our joy. It was great to be here this morning. I was out in the foyer and the violin's going and the keyboards are going and the guitars are going, the drums are going, and people are singing praises to God. Our singing does not have to be perfect. But it's what's in here that matters. Because I'm the worst singer in the house, probably. Maybe you're worse. But if I'm singing to Jesus, I have to take control of my tongue sometimes so I don't put others off. I'm mindful and loving you. But if I have some space, I'm singing it out. Because God deserves my praise and worship. John Wesley wrote, singing is as much the language of holy joy as praying is of holy desire. So when you're praying, you desire to know God, you desire God's glory, you desire God to touch people's lives, you desire these things. And singing is the language of holy joy, the joy in Christ, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of reconciliation, the joy of knowing the God of the universe, the joy of being a son or a daughter of God, adopted into his family, Romans 8 says. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, the Bible says. With an eternity secure, there is a holy joy that comes as a result of all that God has done for us. Have you got that joy? Do you have that holy joy? Does it overflow into how you speak, how you live, how you spend, how you dream? See, and uh, Ephesians 5, Paul then goes on to say also, he links this with the whole idea of singing. Do not, do not get drunk on wine, he says, which leads to debauchery, wild and ungodly living. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And as a result, what do you do? Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you don't get drunk in other things. You are drunk, overcome, and moved by the Holy Spirit of God, and you sing psalms, hymns, and you pray, always giving thanks to God. There's this joy that overflows. I ought to have a church, a Christian church in Australia that is so filled with holy joy, and it flows into witness. Ajith Fernando, Sri Lankan leader, says, 
We as Christians must constantly seek to recapture what Pentecost signified. Vibrant intimacy with God and joyous worship that ensure from it. We will not proclaim what we do not cherish in our hearts. We will not proclaim what we do not cherish in our hearts. That's why Piper, John Piper writes, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Do you have this holy joy? It will naturally lead to powerful witness. And secondly, believers have a new power for ministry. And it flows, as I said, one flows to the other. Peter then preaches to the crowd in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see that in the rest of Acts chapter 2. We're not going to read all the chapter. I'm going to take to a few key passages. He preaches firstly on the life, death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. Fellow Israelites, to all those who are accusing them of being drunk, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of, of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This is a God thing. This is not a drunk thing. This is a visitation of God. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So he doesn't just say, oh, God is here. He preaches the gospel. He takes them to Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. People hear the gospel. When the Spirit of God is at work, it doesn't just wash over them. When the Spirit of God is at work, what happens? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted in their heart. They didn't know what to do. We've killed the Messiah. God raised him from the dead. What now? They ask him. What shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them. See, there's a warning, there's a correction saying, if you keep going in this way, you'll find yourself in danger. And he pleaded with him, come on, come back to Jesus. He's your savior. Why would you want to not follow him? There's a certain pleading at times. Have you ever pleaded with someone? Sometimes you just share the gospel, you've got to leave. But sometimes your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, you've got to plead with them. It's a matter of life and death. You can't just keep ignoring Jesus. You can't just keep sitting on the fence. Sometimes you have to plead with them. You cannot watch a semi-trailer coming down the road and a loved one standing in front of the truck and not pulling them away. Because the judgment of God is coming. The wrath of God is on its way. Now you can't force people to come to Christ, but there are times when you plead with them. Come. Sometimes we present the gospel as if, oh yeah, take it if you like it, don't take it if you don't. No, there ought to be a holy joy and a deep conviction that, that this is a matter of life and death. And so we, we go 
as much as possible. We pray as much as possible. We love deeply. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. There's a way of escape. There's a way of peace to find peace with God. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. They're repenting. The assumption is they already believe. To repent, you have to believe the truth and then turn from your old way, right? There's repenting, there's believing. Believing is all the way through your Bible. There's being baptized. And I say to you, if you've never been baptized in water, you need to be baptized in water. It's not an optional extra in the Bible, by the way. Sometimes, oh, yeah, I'm saved by faith. Yes, you are. But God calls us to demonstrate that in water baptism. So you find forgiveness and you receive the Holy Spirit. I was reading a quote in the book, Stay Salt, by Rebecca Manley Pippet. Matt mentioned her book last week. The pastors are reading this at the moment. In fact, her first book, Out of the Salt Shaker, came out in 1979. I was at Sydney Teachers College between 79 and 82, training to be a math teacher. When it came out, it was encouraged all of us to read that book. It stirred me up to evangelism and mission. It's still on my bookshelf with underlined bits. I showed it to Matt the other day. I still have it. She'd written a new book. She said, now we're 50 years down the track. Our society has changed. How do we stay salty still to make a difference? She says, the Western church's problem, yet a lack of dependence on the Spirit's power, is perhaps the single most glaring deficiency in the modern Western church, especially when compared to the early church or today in the global south. The early church demonstrated great courage in their witness and were bursting at the seams with spiritual power even while they were experiencing catastrophic consequences for proclaiming the gospel. We, on the other hand, often shrink back at merely a raised eyebrow. Why does the Western church today seem so spiritually anemic by contrast with the early church? Because the early church understood something we must learn afresh, that God's supernatural power is available to us that the living God speaks and acts and that his power through his spirit and his word is able to make all things new in a way that transcends human categories. To live as Christ's witnesses in the 21st century, it is critical that we embrace the power of the spirit who resides in us. Jeff Harris was just uh, telling me earlier today that through Gideon's ministry, they've distributed over a thousand uh, Gideon's New Testaments at Sydney University over the past couple of weeks. People taking the gospel, praying that they would read that word and come to Christ. I was talking to someone in my home group this week. Let me illustrate different ways in which people hear the gospel and they're saved. And Mick, uh, Mick's one of our drummers. And he reminded me that about 20, 22 years ago, he was listening to our radio program, 90.1. And I remember he rang me. He said, I heard uh, you preaching on radio and I want to meet with you. I don't go to church. Normally, I want to meet you. He came in and spent an hour or so talking. Then he went away. Six months later, he came back. I have some more questions now. And after that, he started coming regularly, gave his life to Christ. He heard the gospel proclaimed via radio, came for a conversation, and the Spirit of God took hold of him. He's now saved. This week, I was at Mauling College, or last week. I met this guy called AJ. AJ is in prison, but he's studying at Mauling College. You see, he committed some crimes, went to jail. I don't know too much of the story. And um, he only has four months to go. He'll be on parole. 
But in jail, he heard the message of the gospel. And God was powerful to save him. And he saved one of his mates as well, a guy called Cameron. And both of these guys were there sitting in the library of a theological college and he's writing an essay on the book of Jeremiah. And I'd heard about him, so one of my friends mentors him and I saw him, I said, he said, do you want to meet the boys? I said, yeah, sure. This guy's covered in tats, good looking guy, big smile on his face. I got to know them a little bit and I said, what are you doing? I'm writing an essay on the book of Jeremiah. I said, aren't you in prison? I said, yes, I'm on day release between eight and four. I come every day and I study and I write essays. I'm growing in Jesus. Jesus changed my life. He wants to do ministry when he comes out. And it's funny how God works. He said, I said, Jeremiah, it's interesting to study. He said, it's amazing. The other day I was on the train going back to jail. Even talking like that's strange. He said, there was, I saw a 14-year-old boy reading his Bible. I've never seen anyone read a Bible on the train before. I went up to him, what are you reading? He said, I'm reading Jeremiah. He said, I don't know what it means. He said, I can tell you. I studied at Moreland College and I'm writing an essay on Jeremiah. He said, here I am sitting on a train. See how God works? Never be surprised by how God works. An inmate of his majesty's service is sharing the gospel and the truth on the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah on a train in Sydney by the power of the Spirit of God. At the entrance a few years ago, we went to a conference and a pastoral team were, were having uh, breakfast that morning. We'd had three or four days, we were having some time together. As we walked towards uh, a breakfast just down by the water, Milan saw a couple sitting there. I asked the pastor at East Hills at the moment. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I just feel God's told me to go and speak to them. So I went and sat with them. I said, yeah, okay. We'd almost finished our breakfast by the time he came back. He said, what was the story? He said, oh, the guy's got some serious cancer. He doesn't know how, much, how long he has to live. And I started to tell him I was a pastor. And at the end, I just offered to pray for them. And I left them. You never know who God's going to get you to talk to. Be open. Be, the Bible says be spiritually alert. Pray for God-given opportunities. Sometimes we just need to start that conversation. In Bali, I know a number of years ago, we had ministry in Bali. And there was this young street kid think in a mission setting and some Christians got him off the streets put him to a home gave him some education in time he became a Christian he then went on to lead some of our surfing ministry that we are part of that we've been supporting with Ado and others for now over 25 years and when I was there meeting him he told me his story I had nothing going for me 12 13 year old on the streets and now he's leading a ministry by the power of the spirit of God in Southeast Asia, where we support David and Carol, Muslim workers and volunteers are coming to Christ and being baptized. The power of the gospel. Friends, the guy who led me to Christ was a teacher in the public school. He ran an after-school Christian group, and I went along to that in year nine. For a year and a half, I heard the gospel taught, proclaimed, and modeled by his lifestyle. And one night, God says, now's the time, Ange. You can't sit on the fence any longer. And I repented and placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what the Spirit of God did for me? And a whole bunch of us, by the way. We just had to tell people about Jesus. 
We figured if we, we were lost on the way to hell, now we know Jesus and he is Lord over all and everyone else is lost without Jesus, we need to tell people. So I went into, uh, I found a, a Christian teacher at my school, discovered one, and I said to him, sir, I knocked on his uh, staff room one lunchtime and shocked him. And I, said, I never met him before. I said, listen, I hear you're a Christian. He said, yes, I am. So I'm a Christian too. I think we should start a Christian group in our school. Okay, so we set up a Christian group at Enmore Boys High School. Every lunchtime or once a week, I'd encourage my mates to come along to hear about Jesus. And I went to teacher's college. What do you do at teacher's college? What do you do at university? I'll be pushing this tonight with all our university students. Get involved with your Christian group on campus. Got involved with my Christian group. We ran weekly meetings, Bible teaching. We ran weekly or monthly evangelistic events. We took people away on camps. I wrote articles for the student newspaper. We got advertised as the largest group on campus at orientation days. I got to speak to all the new first-year students, all the new fourth-year students for five minutes. And as a result of that, people came to our Christian group the next week because a Christian was willing to declare that Jesus offers new life and transformation. And they came to find out, man, that was pretty bold of you. Pretty bold of God. The story goes on. At the football field, at the netball court, wherever you happen to be, spiritually alert, ready to share good news as you have opportunity. But don't forget as we conclude that we are to expect rejection and mocking as spirit-filled believers. Nothing's changed. Jesus said, remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. Friends, we now enjoy intimacy with God. Let it overflow into gospel proclamation. We're now empowered by God for ministry and mission. Let's proclaim Jesus with faith and courage. We are to expect amazement at and rejection of our message. It's normal. Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. Trust God's plan. Just do what he says. Let me pray. Lord God, we pray that you would so fill us with your spirit that we would be filled with holy joy and holy desire to take your good news to the lost in Australia and to the ends of the earth. Lord, do a new thing amongst us, a powerful thing we pray, that we would see many saved through our various ministries, through our personal relationships, through our missionary workers. God, we submit to you, offer ourselves to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.